And we're back on Red Star Radio, and uh, we're here today with a special guest. Layla, why don't you tell us who it is? So we're sitting with Michael Tracy, who is a well-known independent journalist, currently reporting out of England um, about uh, the Ukraine war and the surrounding events. Um, So welcome, uh, welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on. We're really excited to speak to you. Yeah, happy to come on. Cheers. Cheers from merry old England. Yes, you see, you're getting the lingo already. Um, so, Michael, I do pick I, up on various little uh, slivers of nomenclature. I, I find as I stay here for longer and longer, so maybe they'll manifest over the course of this conversation. I just, you can, you can I just love hearing. On them. I just love hearing the uh, perspective of the English from a North American perspective because it's mat- <laughs> it matches mine. Yeah. Come off it. <laughs> There you go. And um, I'm, I hope you're enjoying the spectacle of uh, British parliamentarianism today, Michael, as uh, Boris Johnson has to apologize for being ambushed with a cake and therefore destroying our COVID regulations. <laughs> yeah, you know, I considered for about five seconds to watch his parliamentary uh, apology tour session today and then thought better of it. Um, but, you know, it, it seems to be it seems to be the case that he was potentially on the verge of being ousted, or at least there were rumblings of it being a serious possibility earlier in the year. And then lo and behold, he's able to transition into this uh, wartime leader role and uh, all that falls by the wayside. And I guess, so this maybe is just a temporary interruption where he has to account for his being presented with cake one day in 2020. Yes, it's the most British scandal ever, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, no one was more grateful for the war starting when it did other than um, other than Boris Johnson. Um, Michael, I'd be remiss in my duty as, um, as somebody be- uh, obviously based in England if I didn't ask you for the opening question. Um, how was your experience running into the, the cream of uh, British Trotskyism the other day? Um, I saw your tweets about it in your subsequent article. Um, you seemed a little bit surprised at the uh, the militant pro-war mood of a bunch of alleged Marxists. I'm assuming, I'm assuming you're referring to one Mr. Paul Mason? Mr. Paul Mason, Mr. Owen Jones, and um, associated characters. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I didn't run into Owen Jones at the actual protest that took place what was it, 10 days ago or so now in Westminster um, or thereabouts, I guess the landing point of the protest actually was at 70 Whitehall or across the street. So there was this really heartwarming ideological synthesis where on the one hand you had the left-wing protesters chanting to arm Ukraine or demanding that even more higher grade arms be sent to Ukraine. And across the street, was Boris Johnson's cabinet office uh, proudly looming over the rest of us and uh, flying atop the office was the Ukraine flag. So there wasn't really much of a difference really between what the government was doing and what these left-wing agitators were demanding the government do. They just wanted Boris Johnson to be more assertive in his sending of arms and basically waging of proxy war. Um, so unfortunately, I would have loved to encounter Owen Jones at that particular protest because he had publicized it and promoted it and called on his so-called anti-war followers to join this pro-war demo, um, but uh, wasn't able to 
find him. I think he was actually occupied that afternoon with a an event involving the war on trans people. So it's actually a multi-front world war that we're in the midst of. It's It just kind of seamlessly transitions back and forth between a war on trans and a war in Ukraine. Um, I, to Owen Jones's credit, I've never met him personally. We've had obviously some unpleasant interactions online, but that's not unique to him. Um, I, I do have a sense that if I were to have come upon him, he would have been slightly more amenable to not at least devolving into a deranged screed, or he like he would have had to the capacity to conduct a somewhat normal conversation. Whereas with Paul Mason, it was like he had this deranged mania just radiating off of him, and he wouldn't even speak to me. I mean, he he actually would say over and over again when I would put questions to him, somewhat politely. I mean, I wasn't trying to be overly belligerent with the guy. I was actually genuinely curious to know more about his left wing activist case for why the working class and the labor movement in the UK ought to mobilize behind Boris Johnson and NATO and support this proxy war, because that's what Paul Mason is calling on everyone to do, who's a you know, right-minded leftist. Um, it's, interestingly, Paul Mason will do this slight uh, rhetorical gym, uh, gymnast move where he says, you know, this is not about NATO per se. And I know a lot of our leftist comrades have some well-founded reservations about NATO, given the, the recent past with Afghanistan and all that. But he'll caution that, you know, bringing up NATO and the undesirability of NATO is actually a straw man because nobody at the march was talking about NATO. He actually was re- replying to critics on Twitter who were putting this point to him after the March. By the way, he helped organize. He just wasn't incidentally there. He was one of the organizers and the leaders of the march, along with different labor unions. Um, and you know, one of his justifications, or one of his ways of trying to convince left-wing skeptics of the righteousness of this cause, is to tell them that actually NATO is nothing has nothing to do with this. So leave aside whatever grievances you might have about NATO and support the cause of the Ukrainian quote-unquote armed struggle um, separate and apart from whatever you believe about NATO. And actually, Owen Jones is the one who called it an armed struggle. He was saying that the anti-war movement should unite around an armed struggle, which, you know, seems like on its face to be a somewhat contradictory position, although, you know, it's hard to really detect any semblance of consistency in anything these people say. Um, but anyway, Mason has this line where he's, he's saying it's not about NATO, right? Now, conveniently for me, you know, maybe I would have been at least somewhat inclined to take that line at face value, that he really wasn't calling on anyone to support NATO, although I don't know who would actually facilitate these arms shipments that he's wanting to be intensified. But, you know, regardless. But then I went to the Mars, right? And I spoke to one of the labor MPs, Alex Sobel, who was there and delivered a speech to address the crowd. And Paul Mason was bullion that they got somebody on the labor uh, shadow cabinet in the later sh- labor shadow cabinet. So high ranking official, you know, we're all supposed to be impressed by to actually uh, come to the march and address it. And I just wanted to start from the beginning with Alex. So when I got a few minutes to interview him and ask, okay, so like what is, what actually is your policy grievance? What is your critique of the conservative government's, Ukraine policy right now, because it seems like you're all on the same page 
Uh, and if anything, you just want it, the intensity of the policy, you know, the proxy war policy, to be ratcheted up slightly. And basically, that's what he was saying. That, I, Alex Silva said to me, there has been a lack of – the, the quote is in the Substack article that you referenced. But Alex Sobel said, there has been a lack of support for Ukraine and there's been a lack of support for NATO. So the guy that Paul Mason was heralding as a star participant in this march actually specifically invoked NATO. So it was about NATO, at least judging on what this MP told me, in contrast to Paul Mason's kind of, you know, uh, sleight of hand assurances that actually it's okay for the left to coalesce around this cause because it really isn't quite about NATO. Well, I mean, yeah, it is. I don't know what, what other body is going to be organizing these arms shipments that Paul Mason envisages as this triumph of left-wing activism, unless he himself, meaning Paul Mason, is going to personally transport the arms into Ukraine, maybe lead a convoy from Kensington or something uh, into into Lviv. Maybe that's on the in the cars. I don't know. We'll have to. Well, maybe see. he can hook up with um, MSNBC's Malcolm Nance and sort this out because um, yeah. apparently members of the American media have now been, as you put it in a tweet recently, Michael, radicalized to the point where they're going to take <laughs> up arms in, a, in some kind of jihad. Well, Malcolm Nance has been totally out of his mind now for a number of years. I first became aware of him in 2016, and that's quite fitting in a way, because I do trace a lot of their, our current epistemic issues to the uh, avalanche or the earthquake of, of 2016 within the media sphere, you know, ep- epistemically anyway, uh, where, you know, any pretense of being objective was cast by the wayside. I was never someone who was a huge champion of this dogma of objectivity uh, in, in journalism, but there was at least like a professional norm that was flawed, but thus nevertheless existed that there would at least be an aspiration to project objectivity. That went totally out the window in 2016. And you could just openly campaign against Trump because he was such an unprecedented fascistic threat who had been installed into office by Putin, right? That's that's around that. And it was in that context that I learned of Malcolm Nance, who was always presenting himself as on the cutting edge of the latest Russiagate developments, right? He, I remember he would be a very keen analyst of troll behavior online and would try to talk about how this was the a, a prong in the campaign of Putin to interfere in American elections and whatnot. And a lot of times Malcolm Nance would actually just get outright duped. There was this one episode actually in 2016 where he and David Frum <laughs> Only the best. Yeah, they they linked arms and they accused me of peddling. I I don't know if you recall, but there was a one of the WikiLeaks releases, but just before the election in 2016, uh, was of the speech transcripts that Hillary Clinton gave. Oh yes, I remember that banks. now. Right, that. Um, she had promised actually Bernie Sanders on the one time where he was pressed to actually challenge Hillary on that issue. He, she assured Bernie Sanders that one of these 2020 Democratic primary debates, or 2016, sorry, Democratic primary debates, that she would, quote, look into releasing these speech transcripts to hated banks like Goldman Sachs and whatnot. And, you know, believe it or not, she apparently looked into it and decided not to do it. 
uh, because they never <laughs> came out until WikiLeaks published this archive from John Podesta's Gmail account that contains some of the speech transcripts. And so there was this whole there was this episode where uh, a troll, like an outright self-professed troll, was tweeting at me. It's sorry to like recount various Twitter developments, but this is actually what happened. A pro-Clinton troll tweeted at me a doctored tra- uh, screenshot of one of these transcripts, right? And I don't know, I guess that, that troll's tweet gained some traction because then it was picked up on by Malcolm Nance and David Frum and others as evidence that Russia had faked these transcripts to make Hillary Clinton look bad and planted them in WikiLeaks. And therefore the whole <laughs> publication was a fraud essentially. Right. I mean, that's what, and, and, and so this pro Clinton troll ironically duped Malcolm Nance and uh, David Frum. So anyway, that, that was one of my first encounters with, with Malcolm Nance, but, but it kind of uh, intensified somewhat recently because I was in Poland for a few weeks in, in March trying to cover to some extent, the kind of the mechanics of this burgeoning U.S. proxy war. And one thing that really infuriated people that I did was I went around and visited some of the newly created U.S. military installations in the vicinity, meaning in southeast Poland mostly. And, uh, you know, we'd try to talk to the soldiers there and get a sense of the uh, policy in place for what kind of media access is being permitted. And it turned out that they had a policy of quote media blackout. That was actually the word, the phrase that they used. Um, not my phrase as to as some kind of pejorative. It's what they actually said. Multiple U.S. military personnel told me. And actually, later on, when I was on Tucker Carlson, he had his producers confirm it, confirm the existence of that policy with the Pentagon. So now it's mm. not just me saying it. That was actually confirmed uh, by another you know, journalistic inquiry. Um, anyway, so I took some photos of these uh, of this growing U.S. military presence in southeastern Poland, which is basically the hub of the proxy war where the weapon shipments are funneled into, and then they're taken on a convoy through a somewhat through a process that is still somewhat opaque in terms of the involvement of U.S. personnel and going over the border into Ukraine and whatnot. But anyway, I took some photos that's and seemed like a fairly benign activity to to me. That just you know, of course, um, this is like a newsworthy event. Just gonna take some photos and and post them. And there was a enormous meltdown, and the meltdown included Malcolm Nance calling on the Polish military police to come and track me down, to throw me into the mud, and arrest me on espionage charges. That's Malcolm Nance. <laughs> that's back when he was. That's back when he was still a paid MSNBC analyst. I mean. He, not everyone. Maybe people who have never appeared on cable news or whatever maybe have a misconception about this. There are some people who are just occasional guests. Like when I go occasionally on uh, Fox, I'm just a guest. I'm not paid to do anything, right? But there are actually people who get lucrative contracts to be analysts. So it's like M- NBC analyst, MSNBC analyst, or whatever, or even Fox analyst, whatever the case may be. That was Malcolm Nance. That was his job. And as he was employed by MSNBC, he was calling on me to be arrested for espionage because I took some photos from a public sidewalk of a U.S. military installation. Um, So, yeah, that's that's at least a little bit of an insight into Malcolm Nance's frame of mind. And all of a sudden it turns out that he's done talking. This was, you know, melodramatically announced yesterday. He's (laughs) going he's actually taking up arms 
to you and going to Ukraine. I don't know if is he in Ukraine. I don't know. That hasn't been independently <laughs> verified by anybody. Well, he did release questioning a that he is yeah. today, Michael. Where oh, did he? Him, okay. him and he and his producer are apparently in Lvov. Um, where Malcolm right. Nance is um, trying to um, predict where the next cruise missile is going to fall. Um, and right. he got uh, um, roundly ratioed, I think is the proper term. <laughs> well, but he's playing dress up then because as far as I know, there's not a whole lot of active combat happening around Lvov and never have has been since the onset of the war. There have been some missile strikes. And I think there was one maybe three days ago ahead of this latest initiation of a Russian offensive in the Donbass, but there has been no uh, like urban warfare or anything around Lviv. So I don't know why Malcolm Nance would have to be in his full military fatigues with the assault rifle, you know, confidently cocked on his shoulder uh, in order to demonstrate that he's in Ukraine. Uh, I think it might have been a PR tactic on his part. I'm not sure. <sighs> I would be stunned if this results in some sort of, you know, documentary that he puts out and then he returns to his MSNBC analyst role. You know, it's interesting. When I was in Poland and trying to report on different aspects of how the proxy war was being facilitated, I was constantly berated by critics online, including many journalists. Actually, they're often the ones leading the charge, saying that this was like fake reporting and this wasn't real journalism. And if I was a real journalist, what I would do is go into Ukraine and report on the war. And what they mean by that, and what real journalism supposedly is, according to them, is to go, you know, 40 miles or so over the border or whatever it is into Ukraine and set up shop in Lviv where nothing that nothing much is happening and do these, you know, dramatized TV spots where you're talking about where you're reciting the latest kind of operational updates that have been emailed to you by Ukraine government officials for that day. And you read them out loud and you have a backdrop of the live and that's war reporting. And that's what these TV correspondents are doing. Um, so that was real journalism. Apparently that's brave and bold. And it's kind of a variation of what Malcolm Nance is doing, but what I was doing that uh, I was told was not true journalism. And of course, if anybody knows what true journalists, true, true journalism is, it's these, you know, pundits and corporate media hacks who are, uh, off, off, you know, dutifully informing us of all the latest developments with not a hint of interest one way or another in the outcome. They're just total objective purveyors of the facts. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned 2016 there, Michael, as the, uh, the point where a lot of things started to unravel. And of course, um, not only did people like Malcolm Nance unravel, of course, our very own Mr. Paul Mason, that was the beginning of his unraveling as well, because mm. you had Trump, we had Brexit, famously enough, same year. And that marked the, a similar kind of unraveling of certain elements of the British media establishment here, uh, to the point where Guardian writers were not only saying, insisting, of course, that the, the Paul Manafort visiting Julian Assange story was true, even though, of course, it's manifestly not or that Putin had somehow manipulated the Brexit referendum just like he'd manipulated the U.S. presidential election. And Paul Mason was leading the charge then, insisting that Putin was um, leading a global authoritarian fascist revival um, that was going to encompass all of the Western world to fall under his suzerainty, effectively, uh, by, by encouraging these movements like Trump and Brexit. And effectively, this became... This became a sort of an unquestioned article of faith, even on like BBC outlets. And then unlike the the United States, we do have a little bit stricter code on objectivity here. But the for like 
So it wouldn't be announced on the news, for instance, but it would be in all the cultural commentary across the BBC that this was Putin was plotting with Trump to carry out uh, Brexit and Boris was part of this. But now, of course, it's gone full circle and Paul Mason is calling upon Boris, who he insisted was a Putin stooge and a fascist for years, now to carry out an aggressive proxy war in Ukraine. So none of this is supposed to make any sense. But I think that's just a testament to the fact that 2016 was the point when so many of these people just went over the edge and have never come back. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember the um, emergence of what was hyped as this enormous scandal involving Cambridge Analytica. Yes. And the person behind that, or at least like the prime mover of it journalistically, was this woman, Caroline, Carol Codwalder, is that Carol Codwalder, yeah. Okay, um, yeah. Guardian journalist um, recently lost a, um, a libel suit by one of the guys who was the sort of founders of the UK Independence Party. Ah, okay, yeah. Well, when that broke, at, as I recall, in 2018, if that's accurate in terms of the chronology, she was ch- vociferously championed as this bold truth teller because she's finally getting to the bottom of this international Russia-fueled geopolitical chicanery uh, effort that included, as sort of one of its prongs, setting the stage for Brexit or even actively bringing about Brexit, you know, in tandem with its effort to uh, get Trump in office. There was just another facet of this worldwide global domination campaign that Russia had undertaken to, I don't know, so, so, uh, or, or foment like right-wing insurrectionist upheaval, something like that. And you even saw uh, certain glimmers of that during the Canada trucker episode earlier this year where CBC commentators would speculate that, you know, we don't know for sure, but it's it seems possible that Russia is behind this as well. Um, because it was just kind of assumed that if there's a any kind of right wing inflected or right wing seeming movement, that Putin must have a hand in it. And if it's occurring in the West, and it could be portrayed as somehow jeopardizing the sanctity of democratic institutions. But anyway, so that Cambridge Analytica thing, it always it was always hilarious to me because. The crux of it, and I haven't read the articles re- recently, but the crux of it, as I recall, was that basically Trump had contracted with this, or the Trump campaign had contracted with this uh, data analytics firm that was using all you know certain tactics to kind of farm data out of Facebook so that they could create psychological profiles of prospective voters and Ted Cruz had used this same firm, I believe, uh, to help him win the Iowa caucus in 2016. And, um, you know, this was, this was uh, uh, trumpeted to be some incredibly scandalous revelation. And it's, it, it was hilarious to me because in 2008, 2012, I distinctly recall, because I, was like, I wasn't even really a journalist in 2008, but I recall, and I had wanted Obama to win in 08, right? I actually had worked on the campaign. This is, you know, pre-journalist pre-journalism. And I remember taking pride in the Obama campaign doing such a fantastic job 
mining information, mining data from Facebook to create these kind of characterological profiles of prospective voters and mobilize them, right? But then, you know, eight years later, it becomes the death knell of democracy if the Trump campaign does more or less the same thing. So that was funny. And that was supposedly another um, front in this information warfare came, campaign waged by Russia. But you're right. I mean, the, it seems to me that the events since February radically contradict the whole kind of premise behind this hyping of Russia orchestrating Brexit in some sense, right? Because the idea was that if Britain were to leave the EU, that would redound to the benefit of Russia, right? Because it would weaken the EU or it would mean that, you know, Europe was more fractured and therefore Russia could assert its dominance more easily. I don't know exactly what the rationale was, but that probably approximates the thinking, right? And yeah, as you mentioned, Boris Johnson was supposedly, you know, one of the, uh, you know, winning or unwitting agents of this Russian scheme. And then it turns out that, you know, 2022, Brexit has happened and the UK is more ardently anti-Russia than ever. I mean, actually, Russian government officials, including Medvedev, who was, you know, in the past thought to be one of these more Western potentially oriented liberals within the Kremlin and who had, you know, is the one that the Obama administration was pinning its hopes on to execute that reset with Hillary Clinton and everything. Um, even he, Medvedev, is now launching screeds saying that Russia, uh, that the UK is actually more zealous in its antipathy for Russia than uh, the US. And uh, that it, it seems like UK leaving the U- European Union might have, in a way, actually uh, bolstered that posture because it means that you know Russia, that the UK is able to forge its independent foreign policy, irrespective of what Macron or you know uh, Schultz want to do. And that independent foreign policy entails being extra aggressive and belligerent toward Russia, and all the more intent on intensifying the proxy warfare against. Russia. So I, I don't know if anybody has revisited that logic from 2018 or so when supposedly Russia was pulling the strings in, in organizing Brexit, but it seems like uh, subsequent events don't really uh, support the thesis. You know, I was in, uh, I took a, a cab recently in London and the cabbie, the taxi driver, put a notice on his metal, uh, not metal, plastic uh, window barrier in the car. And it was a handwritten note and said, it said, as of, I think, March 8th, we can no longer accept card payments, you know, credit card payments that are linked to Russian bank accounts because of the sanctions. And the cab driver himself thought this was totally ridiculous, right? I mean, he, he thought that it was doing nothing of any value. And he was just annoyed, as were his customers, that they could no longer pay for their cab rides by uh, touching their credit card on his little scanner thing. Um, and so it actually has affected ordinary life to some to some extent, meaning the nature of this British policy toward, uh, toward Russia. Um, and so I wouldn't uh, bet on the Caroline Caldwater or whatever her name is or any of these other people who frenziedly hype that net Brexit slash Russia narrative uh, years ago, uh, several years ago, uh, wouldn't ex- anticipate there being any kind of reckoning to see if their predictions have borne out. 
Because uh, if anything, Boris Johnson is, quote, doubling down on the anti-Russia foreign policy posturing, and it has almost nothing to do. In fact, it seems conceivable to me that if the UK were still in the EU, those anti-Russia instincts might have actually been dampened somewhat. Because there would have been like, you know, they would have had to coordinate with certain European countries, like maybe France or Germany, whatever, that are slightly less vociferous in their anti-Russia attitudes. And maybe that would have actually been sort of like a leavening influence on the UK. And so Brexit, you know, paradoxically seems to have uh, turbocharged this uh, drive toward confronting Russia. And uh, I would love to see the Caroline Caldwaters of the world or whomever uh, provide an explanation for that eventuality. Yeah. So do you see, um, so you've just kind of laid out how uh, aggressive the British government is with regards to this war. Um, do you see them as like a cheerleader for the most reactionary elements within the U.S. establishment? Like, is that how you see their role? Or do you find that they are pursuing an independent foreign policy? <coughs> um, <coughs> well, I can only assume, sorry. <coughs> I, I do think it's a byproduct of this pretense that they're pursuing independent foreign policy. Of, co- of course, it's not actually independent. It's still in tandem with the U.S. And it's basically that the you know the the U.K. is operating as a prong of U.S. foreign policy. But at least rhetorically, it sort of makes a certain uh, degree of political sense for them to ramp up the intensity of the rhetoric um, and uh, p- pursue this line as vigorously as possible. And, you know, I, I'm not like a uh, wag the dog uh, absolutist, meaning I'm, I'm not one to necessarily attribute any foreign policy action as being kind of definitively explained by some kind of domestic political issue. But I do think clearly that is a dynamic that is real and politicians react to their political standing domestically uh, by uh, fashioning certain foreign policy responses because it tends to be what they have the most unilateral authority over, especially in the U.S., where I mean, the, the executive is essentially un- unchecked. Uh, not quite the same in the U.K., but still, Boris Johnson can run off to uh, Kiev and have this triumphant like PR uh, sw- visit with Zelensky where they're striding through the war-torn streets and Johnson is offering his utmost support. And this is, you know, supposedly what's what everyone in the the UK should be focusing on politically and not get distracted by the party gate stuff or whatever other problems or liabilities Johnson may have domestically. When the fine for party gate, you know, the first fine was issued last week. Johnson came out and gave a statement and he actually, I mean, it, it almost seemed comical. It almost seemed like it was too good to be true that he did this, but in accepting the fine and expressing some degree of remorse for the infraction, he then within about a minute pivoted to say that this now enhances his resolve to defeat Putin. <laughs> And so, yeah, I mean, 
this this whole image of a wartime he- hero, uh, a wartime leader, I, I think does have a certain political logic associated with it, and it makes perfect sense for a prime minister of the UK or a president to uh, to want to seize upon that opportunity to endow himself with that with that uh, visage, right? Um, and so, uh, is he catering to reactionary elements? I don't know. I mean, maybe to some extent, but one of the features of the consensus that's coalesced around this war, I think, and what's something that I've been trying to report on in various, from various angles, is the absolute ideological intractability of the, of the consensus, meaning that different factions of the, of the political spectrum, all have, from the left to right, all have their own reasons their own kind of like self-justifying reasons to be totally fervent in their support for this war. So Johnson almost doesn't have to cater to any reactionary element because it's so all-encompassing of an ideological consensus. He could almost just as well say that he's catering to the left. I mean, as judged by those street protesters, right, led by Paul Mason and Noah Jones and such, this is one of the few things that they're happy to uh, join arms with Boris Johnson in supporting. Um, so I don't know if he has to cater to one particularly uh, reactionary element or not. Um, but, you know, clearly there is a, a, a ton of coordination uh, that's being done between the UK and the US on this issue, which actually makes me wonder. And you know, one of a, per, a pertinent question that I would like to pose to somebody in a position to know at this time is uh, to what extent the US had operational knowledge, and I'm sure. And, and, you would think that it must have had, right? Operational knowledge of this deployment that the Times reported uh, a few days ago of uh, British special forces that have been physically uh, entering Ukraine, that they're in Kiev, Kiev uh, doing training missions. So there are UK boots on the ground in Ukraine as we speak, if we take this Times report at face value, and I don't have any reason to doubt it because it's kind of like an organ of the Conservative Party. So why would they, you know, do something that? Why, why would they publish information that's totally uh, inimical to the incumbent government's interests? Right? Uh, maybe I'm missing something, and I don't know. I'm not fully abreast of the nuances of that media slash state relationship. But nonetheless, it should still occasion the question to my mind of like to how how involved. Is the U.S. government, uh, in terms of its uh, awareness or even operational uh, coordination uh, amongst this n- uh, military unit of a NATO member state that is physically has its boots, quote unquote, on the ground in Ukraine? Yeah. Sorry to um, <laughs> Not at all. Um, uh, okay, so um, there was a lot of uh, perhaps brouhaha around the. Biden-Trump election, which just seems like forever ago, but I guess it wasn't that long ago, about how, um, you know, a lot of people kind of suggesting that Trump was more of an anti-war candidate or more of an anti-war president, um, and he had shifted things, like at the very least in the Republican Party, if not the state apparatus. So I think it's pretty clear that um, the neoconservatives are in charge when it comes to foreign policy quite firmly at the um, institutional level um, in the political uh, in, in the executive and legislative branches but 
What about uh, the Republican Party? Do you think that Trump kind of shifted the war stats of the Republican Party? No, not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a lot of Republicans and online Trump supporters or, and edgy reactionaries and stuff like to tell themselves that because it gives the impression that the Republican Party is this vehicle for like orthodoxy challenging you know, innovations in political formations or something. And I just don't think there's a whole lot of evidence for it. Um, Trump himself is one of the, uh, the policies that his administration implemented over the, you know, from 2017 to 2021 laid a lot of the groundwork for this current war. Um, Trump, I was watching some old clips to sort of refresh my memory recently. And in, in 2017, uh, Trump, publicly stated that he believed that U.S.-Russia relations were at an all-time low, and he was probably right, and he did nothing to stem that. In fact, they continued to worsen because he bombed Syria on multiple occasions. Mm. You know, he tried to engineer regime change in Venezuela, which was the you know, number one ally of Russia in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, he tried to block, you know, the, Nor- the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline and such. Um, he you know, expressed at times superficial uh, reluctance to impose sanctions on on Russia, but always ended up acceding to whatever Congress passed uh, in terms of sanctions. Uh, He he tore up the INF Treaty, which actually Putin has specifically cited as an example of why the U.S. can't be trusted in its brokering of agreements with Russia. Um, He presided over two rounds of NATO expansion, he actually uh, sought to increase NATO funding, um, and he used his occasional feints towards uh, skepticism of NATO's purpose as, a, as leverage to cajole more funding from European member states of NATO, thereby strengthening NATO. Um, and, you know, he ended up... Also, uh, going along with the with, with whatever Lindsey Graham and John McCain wanted on Ukraine, namely by starting the process of sending lethal weapons to Ukraine. He's the one who uh, presided over Ukraine ascending into what was called enhanced partnership status in 2020, which was basically a prelude to them formally entering NATO. Um, and on and on and on. I mean, I, I don't see any evidence from a policy standpoint of Trump or the Trump administration doing anything against the grain on Russia at all, or uh, doing anything that, you know, pretty much any conventional Republican wouldn't have done. The problem with Trump and the, the, uh, the kind of distortion, distortive effect with Trump is that both his supporters and opponents relentlessly, relentlessly fixate on his rhetoric because his rhetoric actually was unorthodox, right? I mean, he obviously had an entertainer's approach to the presidential pulpit. Um, where he's you know constantly tweeting bizarre things and he's cracking jokes and a lot of it actually is entertaining, um, and so that tends to be, consume people's perception of what he's doing on a policy level. Even on a policy level, it's totally uh, different than what their kind of uh, surface level impression might be. Um, and all, you know, if you look at what Republican elected officials are saying now, I mean, forget Trump. I mean, he, he's he he actually at his CPAC speech after the invasion, you know, his big critique of Biden supposedly after the invasion was that it never would have happened under his watch because you know 
Putin would have been too intimidated. You know, I don't know. Is that possible? I guess. Um, but his critique of Biden was that Biden is not uh, willing willing enough to threaten nuclear retaliation against Russia to get them to stop invading Ukraine. That's what Trump just said in February. Um, and uh, yet, you know, when you talk to like online MAGA people, they have this sense that Trump is somehow bucking the military industrial complex or he, uh, you know, he would never have allowed for some kind of war with with Russia because he's just too peace loving or something. I mean, that's a little bit of a caricature of what their, their view is, but it's something along those lines, right? Well, and, I think uh, the know, idea, I think it might be like they he would have been against the war because America first type thing, like prioritize American needs over these foreign policy priorities. Well, I mean, if so, then why, but why did he start? Why didn't his America first ideological commitments yeah. stop him from sending lethal weaponry to Ukraine? I mean, he, he mm, continues to yeah. brag about that today as, you know, he, he's, he's, he's claiming that he surpassed Obama in his willingness to militarily forge basically Ukraine into an outpost of the U S and NATO. So, I mean, th- I mean, I think after four years of a guy being in office, you have a pretty robust record to mm-hmm. uh, to judge. And there's nothing really that I would think would lead itself to that thesis. Um, mm-hmm. And then I'll look at what the, the – I mean, I almost think that this idea that neocons run everything is a bit, a bit of a misnomer or a distraction because there aren't that many neocons. There never have been. I mean, the, the neocons, as you know, narrowly defined, the people who actually do have espoused neoconservative ideological precepts, it's one of their amazing accomplishments is that because even though they were a small cadre of like quote unquote intellectuals, they exerted massively outsized influence on the American political system. Like George W. Bush was not himself an ideological neocon, right? He, but he brought them into his brain trust. And his governing apparatus, and therefore essentially just was a vessel for whatever the neocons wanted to do. And you know, it's kind of a similar concept with 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 Trump, although uh, it, it's not as overtly neocon with him. It's just like you know, Mike Pompeo. I mean, Mike Pompeo would have been, per- and Mike Pence, for example. I mean, Mike Pence voted for the Iraq War, never repudiated that um, when he was in Congress, and then was brought on as vice president. And then you know, his views, which would have been total Bush on. St- totally in line with George W. Bush in the early 2000s, then became totally in line with Trump in the uh, post-2016 because there's just a constant sort of need within the Republican coalition and the conservative movement to make it seem as though they're discarding like ori uh, orthodoxies that the party once adhered to, but now they've seen the light and they're moving beyond it. Um, and it's just, it's just never the case. I mean, supposedly the Tea Party was this radical revolutionary movement that – that you know was of, of course almost immediately absorbed into the Republican establishment, and the same what goes for for MAGA. I mean, that's sort of why the 2020 Trump campaign was so boring and ineffective because uh, the MAGA branding had become centralized in the Republican Party kind of mainframe. Whereas in 2016, he was more off the reservation and uh, wasn't necessarily kowtowing every minute to these ideological cliches of the conservative movement. By 2020, he was the conservative movement. So, uh, you know, he was basically wedded to their, their dogmas. Um, so no, I mean, I don't, I don't really buy this. I mean, if someone's got to provide evidence rather that the Republican party has moved beyond its quote unquote neocon predilections and is now anti-interventionist. Cause I don't see it. Um, none of the most prominent Republican elected officials espouse that view. 
Um, there have always been a handful of, of Republicans that have at least gestured toward anti-interventionism. I mean, Ron Paul was in Congress forever. Yeah. Um, but but they don't really represent anything close to the consensus view within the party and still don't. And in fact, the Republican Party has gone in a more interventionist direction since Trump's been out of office. Uh, in part, the urging of Trump himself, because they think it's mm-hmm. politically salient to attack Biden as an appeaser or as a uh, sissy for not being assertive enough in waging this proxy war, even though you know Biden escalates it pretty much every day, but he never yeah. does. He never escalates enough to the satisfaction of Republicans. So, I mean, I, but if you have a countervailing theory on what the Republicans are up to or what the conservative movement wants, I mean, let me know because I don't, I don't see it. Mm. Well, uh, you mentioned Biden there, Michael, and um, turning to him and his administration. Um, by the way, the conservative, I mean, the conservative. Sorry to interrupt, but just an additional thought to develop this a little further. Um, since COVID, the Republicans have been massively hawkish on China. Right? They've, uh, you know, Trump was wanting to confront China economically, wage a trade war, etc. And to the extent that they had any problems with the Democrats' focus on Russia, it was because they thought that it was a distraction from China. I mean, I, I'm generalizing here, but if you go look at what. Uh, like a Tom Cotton or Marco Rubio or even a Ted Cruz would say about something like this, that would basically be their critique, right? Oh, the Democrats are so hell bent on taking down Trump that they're trying to distract us from our main geopolitical foe, which is China. And they would justify basically ramping up of military expenditure uh, toward the need to confront China. And now what what has this Russia invasion of Ukraine done? Well, it's kind of merged the two for the, the, the two objectives, right? The the Democrats have been obsessed with Russia. The Republicans have been obsessed with China. But now because China is seen as party to the Ukraine war in some sense by giving Russia diplomatic cover or uh, you know, converging its interests with Russia in, in a sense because they're not gonna, they're not condemning Russia and they're still trading with Russia. And they right before the invasion, Xi and Putin did meet in meet at the Olympics in Beijing and they put out this man- joint manifesto where they're basically saying that the uh, foreign policy priorities of China and Russia were one and the same and they are, their relationship had never been closer. Um, so because China and Russia are now like in uh, viewed as the singular nemesis, it gives both Republicans and Democrats all the ideolo- ideological ammunition they need to be all out in favor of waging this uh, proxy war in Ukraine to its fullest possible extent. Um, so the uh, recipe is in place uh, for, uh, ideologically to to uh, see that to its ultimate conclusion, which probably is regime change. I mean, that's what Biden said he wanted, and I didn't see a whole lot of Republicans objecting in principle to that. Um, and in fact, they they wanted it. They want they wanted to be done more swiftly. Well, that's what um, certainly Hillary Clinton, in a, uh, an interview just after the current uh, the current round of the war began, was saying that the aim was to drag Russia into a new Afghanistan type situation, and uh, then of course Biden did his later denied by his team, but his comments in Poland, where he certainly appeared to call for regime change in Russia, well, it wasn't denied by his team, and that's sort of another misnomer. All that his quote unquote team did when you know they sent out emails instantaneously to reporters to clarify the comment was to say that this didn't represent any change in US policy. Hmm. 
So it was already right. U.S. policy. It was already anyway. U.S. policy, right? Yeah. Biden just articulated it, and it was also done in a formal speech. It was done in this legacy-defining speech that Biden was doing in a formal, in a foreign capital, right? And so this idea that it was just a gaffe, or that it was just this spur of the moment outburst that Biden couldn't emotionally control himself from articulating is just idiotic. If anything, there seems to be like this good cop, bad cop thing happening where Biden will make a statement that seems to be, uh, you know, pushing the limits of what U.S. policy is. And then it'll be, you know, quote unquote, walked back and this will just be taken at face value. I mean, it makes no sense. Biden has, has in the times that he's been asked about this after that Warsaw speech, he never recanted his call for regime change. They just do this little pivot where they say that it's not any, uh, there's been no change to U.S. policy. Okay, so that, that's what U.S. policy is. And even before Biden said that, the unav- uh, unavoidable inference when you examine U.S. For, US policy was that it was geared toward regime change. That's what they say the sanctions are for. To, it's to collapse the Russian economy. It doesn't seem like it's working, but that's what the intent was. And to inflict enough suffering on Russian civilians that they, they would be eventually put in such privation that they would have no choice but to overthrow Putin um, and to, quote, bleed Russia uh, dry by uh, fueling this indefinite proxy warfare in Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, that was that would that would have been the sensible inference for anyway, regardless of what Biden officially said in one of his speeches. But when he did say it, you know, it was just a reflection of what the policy is. And then, you know, journalists because they're very stupid and they have no real <laughs> interest in foreign policy. I mean, it's it's almost seen as lame to have a thorough knowledge of anything related to foreign policy. Um, uh, other than like what the latest talking points from the Brookings Institution are or the Heritage Foundation or whatever. Um, they, they say, oh, well, you know, look, everybody, this has been walked back. So this is not official U.S. foreign policy. Well, I mean, there actually is no such thing as official U.S. foreign policy. Is there a place in the Pentagon where I can go or the State Department that outlines what quote unquote official foreign policy is? No, it's a, that's a, it's a nonsense concept. One of the reasons why what the president says and does in the arena of foreign policy is so significant is because since World War II, the presidency has amassed more and more unchecked, unfettered power to wage uh, conduct foreign policy as he sees fit. So what the president does is official policy. And that brings us to the end of part one of this interview with the journalist and writer Michael Tracy. Part two will be up on our Patreon page next Tuesday, so be sure to tune in for that. But until then, thank you for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon.